Uh, before we start the podcast, I have some breaking news. Breaking news from the Trash Future News Desk. Breaking news. Can we please play the Bunta Vista breaking news stinger? Oh, good morning, Raleigh. What's your news? <laughs> Crockett, it's been a busy day over here in London. <laughs> uh, the Due to the hard work of the Trash Future podcast, uh, WeWork has cut its IPO valuation in half to $20 billion from $45 billion. <laughs> That's very good. I like to think that my rant on the podcast actually was like taking money off their share price live. <laughs> yeah, every, to- every time you download our podcast, WeWork gets less valuable. <laughs> I, I, have an, I have another theory for it, which is that yesterday, the Jeremy Renner app closed down. The Jeremy um, Renner app. The Jer- Jeremy Renner app. You don't heard about this. Um, what, no? So they had to like remove a bunch of people from like various WeWorks across the world. Um, you don't know what the Jeremy Renner app no, is. No, I don't. Oh what my is God. it? It's like WeWork's Matt Hancock, biggest client. Right? It is Matt Hancock, but if Matt Hancock was the Jeremy worst Renner. Avenger, so the worst, the right. worst Tory cabinet, a very, <laughs> very average sequential. Avenger. But the great thing about Jeremy Renner is that like he he wants to use his like mild fame, but Marvel is kind of accelerated him to to like become like a dad rock guy so like i yes. his music is terrible it's so bad but it's like so bad in a kind of like i can't stop looking way he wants to do like a hugh laurie um, type uh, well he wanted to make an app move. to like bring people together so there was no purpose for this app like there was no <laughs> reason why, like- together in the light of jeremy renner <laughs> And it was basically an Instagram clone, except everybody's avatar had to be Jeremy Renner's face. Right. You couldn't pick your own avatar. Yes. You all had to be Jeremy yes. Renner. And you got like 120 coins if you just said anything on the Jeremy Renner app. Um, he would just send you his Instagram photos before they went up on Instagram. <laughs> uh, yes. um, and he had so, to shut it down because a bunch of people found out that Jeremy Renner had an app. And just like with the Matt Hancock stuff, they started just like causing chaos. They were like, <laughs> Jeremy Renner, like shit on my face. Jeremy Renner, fuck my wife. Uh, and he was like, I'm too busy, guys. Right. So, Wait, but, so but, the Jeremy Renner app is like, it just like, it makes you trans, but in a way that you're specifically, you identify as Jeremy Renner. That's what it makes well, you. Also, I mean, because of the fact that everybody's face on the app was Jeremy Renner's face, when you got push <laughs> notifications on your phone, uh, no matter how obscene or ribald they were, it looked like it was Jeremy Renner saying <laughs> it to you. That's so what like a design for. Also, it just sounds like, yeah. it just sounds like the worst reboot of being John Malkovich. <laughs> 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 that's that's so, no that's my that WeWork has WeWork has lost like most of its customers because apparently it was just Jeremy Renner <laughs> traveling from desk to desk to desk all around the world hustling ever harder and hustling towards freedom but it's <laughs> it's had to have its value now because um they're all, they only uh, are housing um Facebook's telepathy division uh, Elon <laughs> Musk's new new company to do flight from Mars to further exoplanets <laughs> Um, and then, of course, uh, the Gates Initiative to study the number 10 to see if it can be made more palatable to Africa. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of TF, the podcast that you're listening to. I'm Riley and I'm calling from a hotel in another country. How is everyone doing from a distance? Riley's making his own P tape. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to innovate on the P tape. Uh, I'm trying to distribute little thimbles of P around the hotel so I can get every bed, not just the ones the Obama slept in. Damn. You're trying, to, you're trying to soil the bed that Leo Varadkar slept in. That's the idea. You're going to get like the minor liberal, liberal world leaders. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm starting small. Hmm. 
Uh, and who do we have in studio? I can't tell because I can't see because I'm elsewhere. Uh, hi, it's me, Milo Edwards, uh, your boy. I'm not in a hotel, but I am still making a piss tape. So <laughs> make of that what you will. You have me, Nate, in studio again. Uh, my first session back after my hilarious bike ride that ended in me falling on my head. Uh, not going to be talking much because I'm still working up the energy to figure that out. Nate uh, is now the most broken-brained person on the podcast. <laughs> the <laughs> actual most broken-brained person. Um, uh, hi, it's me, Alex Kiwi, occasional guest on this podcast and comedian who's recovered from the art sector's version of a bicycle crash the edinburgh fringe um <laughs> so I've, I've about covered from that version of a concussion yeah oh yeah sorry I, i'm just gonna bring my down to racism but also because i got distracted by a pigeon eating the carcass of another pigeon <laughs> oh, yes no. we live in society pigeons folks, will outlive and us it's all good. they're willing oh. to go places we won't go in a way pigeons are so twisted they might as well all be wearing joker makeup <laughs> yeah <laughs> Damn it. hussein why do you have to run into a, a visual metaphor for the tory party you know <laughs> how i got these scars air rifle it was kept with an air rifle yeah. that's it <laughs> Uh, and we're also joined uh, by Will Davies, uh, who you may know as the author of many books, including, uh, relevantly for today, Nervous States, and who's also a reader in political economy at Goldsmiths in London. Will, how's it going? Yeah, very well, thanks. And thanks for having me on the show. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Uh, always a delight to do the show, especially when I have brought our mobile recording gear to the most airport-ass <laughs> hotel in the entire world. <laughs> I'm sharing a room with a plane. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> um, so, look, I want to just hop right into it, uh, folks. Uh, I found a startup yet again. They're just, they keep coming. They just keep starting up. They do. It's in the name. Yeah. It's right there. It's 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 because of the because, Jeremy because, Renner because, app. Because we, it, we ruined this segment. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nate, could you please edit out the frantic typing as I'm trying to find another startup after we sort of blew our load <laughs> on the Jeremy Renner app while furiously promising, oh, like, oh, it's as appropriate as fuck. This one that I've definitely yeah, already. I think a lot of people blew their loads on the Jeremy Renner app from the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you can do a cum tribute on a text message that <laughs> looks like Jeremy Renner sent it to you. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love this normal podcast. I'm not yeah. saying you should. I'm saying the best thing is when you, you invite smart people on and then you just talk about body fluids. Yeah. Mm. I'd love to see it. You'd love to hear it. Here's what we're going to stop <laughs> doing is that. Here's what we're going to start doing. We're going to play the startup game. Um, All right. Let's take mm -hmm. the startup game Stinger from Bunta Vista. Um, okay. So the startup oh. this week is Ginger. It's called Ginger. <laughs> Uh, this is it like grows in the ground in Asia. Um, I feel like I feel like so I feel like Will needs uh, the. I think the best way to describe what we're about to do now is it's like only connect, but for terrible. Like you get more of a point if we can immediately work out what it is just from the name Ginger. There's like additional points, I think. Uh -huh. But then for each additional clue, another <laughs> tip is that most of it relates to measuring skulls. <laughs> most, one, of the, most of yeah. No, this is one of the third kind. This okay. is not a skull measuring one, but it's not far off. <laughs> Close investments of the third kind. <laughs> it, it, um, Ginger sounds like the kind of name they'd give to an app that, I don't know, that finds some way to, I don't know, to, to take money and put it into like a high risk investment for you that it rounds up your purchases, but it only invests in like, you know, it, it only invests in shot collar IPOs or something like that. Oh, it's a dating app for redhead people to ensure that their genome doesn't die out. <laughs> 
something I have a very serious concern about. <laughs> yeah, Nate, Nate has an account. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Is it is it like a is yeah is it yeah it rounds up your purchases, but it funds like live live laugh love posters in under live laugh love locations around the world. Like the gin, the gin in that is making me think it's something about live laugh love. <laughs> we mm. need we need to get more live laugh love posters to Yemen. Yeah, I think yeah. Well, that's the, the, what it sounds like. The two like genders are, of course, live, laugh, love, and keep calm and carry on. You can oh, be one or the god. other. Oh god, just awful. Um, no. So here's the first bit of ad copy. Uh, unless Will, do you have any guesses before I give the first uh, bit of ad copy? I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm still trying to work out exactly what the rules of this game are, but I'm I'm picking it up. No, I, I haven't got any initial guesses. There okay. aren't any rules. Don't okay. worry. There aren't any <laughs> just rules. Just say whatever you want at any time. <laughs> just, say, just say whatever There are no, there are no prizes. <laughs> this will not no. affect your career in any way. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, if you win, if you win, it's worrying because you just have a more than an innate understanding of like the harrowing nature of 21st century capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if you can guess what ginger is, it'd be very cool after I tell you the first bit of ad copy with a word blanked out. Blank within 60 seconds. <laughs> uh, fuck another ginger. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's 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 a dating app that's guaranteed to succeed fast, is what you're saying. It's like the horny gingers. horny gingers in your area are looking for no strings attached, uh, kind of like small gene pool fun. Uh-huh. Absolutely. You, who wants to have fun at the gene? <laughs> it's no strings pool? attached, but you do have to have a child with them. It's a very weird concept. <laughs> they don't care if you raise the child; they just want another ginger child to be in existence. <laughs> One or otherwise. It's re- yeah, it's called representation. Exactly. It's it's so it's important. Blank so within sixty seconds. Blank within sixty seconds. Call the cops within sixty <laughs> seconds. It's it's like the successor to the Ring app that. He scans your face to determine if you're afraid or not. Closer. Mm. Closer. Is, is, uh, is ginger spelt? Is it misspelled in any way. performative way? It's just the word ginger, the six letters. It's not, it's not G-I-N-G-R. No. Gin, the drink gin, and then the shortening Ginger. of Germany when they play football. Yeah. yeah. And that's just without, okay. Yeah, it's it's for it's for FBPE holidays to Germany, so you can see <laughs> how great the EU is, and have some have some gin in Germany. Okay, no, I'll give you the next the next clue. We provide superhuman blank for blank, so they can feel superhuman. Oh, we provide superhuman genes for gingers. <laughs> yeah, it's type of steroid that gets specifically ginger people jacked as hell. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> is, it, is it an app? That lets you hire people to be in your Instagram influencer photos, <laughs> oh, like God. like Jeremy Renner, for example. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Like his schedule's freed up close? a little bit. Uh, no, it's not close. But my God, is it believable that there would be oh, one yeah. of those? <laughs> Fuck me, that's Nate. That's too far. Have friends within sixty See, seconds. How do yeah. you understand <laughs> how, how to understand capitalism? When well, you have to fall off a bike and hit your head, and then all of a sudden it just comes to you. <laughs> Um, yeah, Jeremy Renner needs Adam to get in a Smith bike was crash. the most bike folly off of them all. <laughs> no, the Jeremy Renner app was caused when he had a bike crash. No, that's, that's when he what... woke up and it was like, "What we need is an app in which every figure is built on an ecosystem about me." Like, no, no, that's I was just why. swept from my. That's why the Industrial Revolution happened in like the 18th and 19th centuries because the bikes had those gigantic, huge front wheels, and so you <laughs> fell a great Hell distance. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And Adam then, Smith just like, I just fell from my penny farthing. It was I've been swept off it by an invisible hand. My <laughs> God. <laughs> I just 
if you fall down, you just you sit up. It that's like um no, that's like uh 18th century Burning Man is falling off your penny farthing and then having the idea for the steam loom. Isn't 18th oh, it's, century oh, it's, Burning Man just an actual huge Burning Man on a Scottish island that has a policeman in it? Which <laughs> it's it's uh. It's Richard Curtis's yesterday, but he bangs his head and wakes up, and only he can remember externalities. Okay, and <laughs> uh, it's okay. So no, none of that's the case. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna drag us back <laughs> on course. The only band he can remember is Smash Mouth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they've oh, never existed. <laughs> Just starts wearing shirts with flames on them, <laughs> and like there's concerts with lots of like ten fat dudes in fedoras there, and he's like, I'm having a great time. Awesome, awesome. We love it. Um, here's the last clue. Um, before before we go through. It's available 24-7 because life doesn't happen 9 to 5. So Ginger, blank within 60 seconds, provides superhuman blank for blank so they can feel superhuman. And it's available 24-7 because life doesn't happen 9 to 5. Okay. I'm it's, basically okay, handing okay. it to you. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is, it's like it's some sort of like insane energy drink, right? Right. It's either like a Viagra or we're pronouncing <laughs> it wrong and it's actually called ginger because <laughs> what it does is provide you a shot of German jeans. Hmm. Ah, Dr. Joseph Mengele. <laughs> right, yes, yeah, I'm thinking uh, about like, it just goes back to phrenology. It just goes back to like... one of these like, brain ones? I mean, there are these ones which try to stimulate the brain in various ways. You know, like... You Will is the closest. Will's the closest. Yeah. We have had ones like that before, actually. Yeah. Oh, like a nootropic. Oh, Riley, Riley, yeah. is it like one of the service where you, someone comes to your house and gives you like a vitamin B12 injection because you have a hangover or something like that? Uh, no, Will has been the closest in that it is okay. supposed to change your mental state. So within sixty seconds. So it's not. Is it? Is it? Is it? It's like a. It should, so it's not. A, so it's close. A, a helmet's closer than a drink. Um. Okay. You know, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna reveal. It's not no. like a torch you shine in your eye, is it? Like the other one we had. <laughs> We've done one that of like those makes before you too. feel better or somehow. <laughs> um. It's about as spurious. Um. Actually, it's not as spurious, but it's more evil. Uh. At Ginger. We help people overcome life's challenges. Whether you're stressed about work, having relationship troubles, or don't feel like yourself, you can just pick up your phone uh, and text your coach, who will help you navigate the next step. Right. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yep, that's right. So basically, right. It's, it's, it. it's, it's like you get therapy from Microsoft is Clippy. It a, it's a human, yes. ther- human coach, or is it? Uh, I mean, you get yes. text only. Yeah, okay. Right, okay. But um, it needn't be. No, uh, I mean, like yeah, it sounds yeah, yeah. quite easily automatable. For, <laughs> it's just they've, they've, they've redone the smarter child bot from MSN Messenger. I mean, if you just scraped all the data from life coaches in reality and fed it into a neural net, then it would be quite easy to just sort of have a load of, you know. Will, have you considered a career change to step tech startup entrepreneur? Because I think you could have a great future ahead of you. Have you thought about embracing that which you critique and, and monetizing mm. it? Why is it called ginger? Um, because, well, I was wondering this myself. And then right. I saw that on the um, on their homepage, uh, their, their images of a cup of tea with some slices of ginger and like a whole slice of lemon in it. So I think it's supposed to be like uh, calming. Uh, it's very it's live, laugh, love. So if, if in effect, it is a teletherapy app that delivers cognitive behavioral therapy, which in my opinion, and maybe we can get into this before we go on, Will, the most neoliberal form of psychiatry, which has just <laughs> raised $70 million against an evaluation of we, they won't say. This is huge, mm. actually. The amount of venture capital in this area is massive at the moment. Yeah. I mean, not just the human bits, but the, that's why I'm, <laughs> I mean, my question was actually kind of serious. Like, are they actually human 
coaches or not because there is a massive industry now in sort of basically kind of what they call emotional AI which is sort of you know things which can kind of sense how you're feeling and then send something back which might make you feel a bit better or a bit different and that kind of stuff and uh, it's the same industry incidentally as kind of a lot of the facial recognition stuff because it's basically about just interpreting signs of what's going on with you and then sending you something back it's just that the you know dodgy facial recognition people in King's Cross are just hoarding the data rather than sort of selling you something back on the just, they're finally built seems, robot homies. Yeah. Just seems so weird <laughs> Basically, yeah. to like have it. Yeah, to, to be like, here's a substitute for things that might actually improve your mental health. AI that thinks it knows what your problems are. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, to be yeah. clear, to be clear, this company uh, hires actual coaches for now. But given the pattern of these companies that we understand, as we understand them, it's all all of these disruptive uh, things where they say, oh, "It's the sharing economy. We're connecting people, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, are just basically raising capital against a future automation play where right. they eventually mm-hmm. just become a monopolist. I imagine like you calling them up when they they get oversubscribed and they've still only got like the one coach and it's like your call is important to us and it's like playing like whale song like (laughs) (laughs) you are 349th in the queue (laughs) I don't know if you saw this recently Riley but something that this brings up um, there's an app at UC Berkeley uh, in which a robot delivers your food it's like Uber but with a robot but what it was it was sold as AI, but it actually turns out to be that it's being remote operated by people in Colombia making two dollars an hour. Um, and the whole idea is that they people we used love, to work for a Tabasco bar for five dollars an hour. They, they, <laughs> and now this shit. They, so, so basically, I, when I think about this, that's that's what that's what I think of is not that a bad machine reading version is going to tell you you know what your problems are, but rather that you're gonna ha- you're gonna be it's scare quotes AI, and it's actually like an underpaid person providing mental health services. You know, in a country where they're making like starvation wages. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, actually, that well, Nate, you've been a little bit prescient because, um, again, I hate not it when in, that happens. Not exactly, uh, but you you sort of prefigure what I'm going to say next. Um, although before we do go go through, I do also do want to say cognitive behavioral therapy is like the worst form of psychiatry. Um, because uh, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with it, but uh, my problem with that's it is where it they just... electroshock you to make you gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, Milo. You're right. No, it's because it's just it's being anxious and depressed is a very rational response to this to living in the society we live in, um, and and all cog- a lot of what cognitive behavioral therapy seems to do is just get you to ignore the cues that make you anxious and depressed and just don't feel that way but don't do anything about the things that are making you feel that way i don't know if anyone if anyone yeah. has any experience with this what if we what if we changed your relationship to the fact that everything is on fire <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of that i mean actually, i wrote vitamins. a blog post earlier in the summer basically arguing that this was effectively the governing premise of the Boris Johnson government which is to say hey stop talking in this negative way about the completely fucked situation we're in and start thinking positively about it and then the whole situation might start to become different which is a sort of it's a similar I mean that that the, the more extreme end of that is that um, sort of crazy you know the secret that that book mm. which is that you can sort of become a millionaire purely by sort of playing with your own thoughts and that sort of thing. So cognitive behavioral therapy is not the kind of ex- sort of extreme sort of um, fantasy end of it, but it definitely is somewhere kind of on a spectrum towards that sort of, you know, the, the reality is kind of irrelevant in some way and mm. that you can, you know, that you can change the way you feel. The thing is, it has also done quite a lot of good for certain people in certain situations, you know. I mean, there are kind of 
you know, obviously it, it's huge on the NHS nowadays and so on. So, I mean, it's, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely um, a way of trying to get people to treat feelings and emotions as sort of these kind of things that you can change a bit like your diet or something like that. And uh, as if they don't actually tell you something about the world, I suppose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's that's sort of my that's a, a, well you've articulated my critique of cognitive behavioral therapy I think much better than I did because it's true it does it does do something good for people but you'll often see it touted as this miracle cure this the ultimate mental health process for coping with life in a neoliberal world. Well, yeah, um, if somebody's get using CBT to get over the fact that they have, you know, anxiety or post-traumatic stress from, say, for example, like being in a train crash or being in a car crash or, I don't know, being deployed to a combat zone or surviving a traumatic event or something like that, that's one thing. But if it's a catch-all solution for the, the problems of alienation in the economy we live in and the fact that people, you know, especially in this country are earning less than they did 10 years ago when you adjust it for inflation, but things are far more expensive and nothing seems to be getting better, then it seems just like a very cynical way to be like, well, yes, the situation is fucked, but maybe you can train yourself to feel better about it. Thanks cynical. to cognitive behavioral therapy, I can go back on Twitter and every time I see someone in dungarees, I don't break out in a sweat. <laughs> <laughs> cynical. Nate, come on. Very real problem. <laughs> a venture capital funded mental health startup being cynical? I wouldn't buy that for a second. Um, by of the way, not. Earlier, that 70 million round of funding I was talking about is being led by a firm called WP Global Partners, an investment firm that also is a major investor in companies like Postmates, which is a gig economy hell firm that bills itself as Deliveroo for literally anything. So, you know. <laughs> that, sounds, yes. that sounds like something which would, I mean, that I don't know. There was this, um, uh, uh, do, do people remember Internet Roulette? Like this was this. Well, chat, I'm roulette. Show, chat Roulette. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I yes. thought I was showing my age yeah, there for still, a second. That's still that, that's uh, like Twitter. Chat Roulette. But then it became like, I mean, it was just these things which, where people were just sort of, for a while, just kind of glorying in the sheer randomness of what the internet was capable of. Yeah. Which, it sounds mm. like that startup, which is like a delivery for literally anything, just lends itself to people sitting around getting <laughs> stoned. You don't get like to buy what you order. They just bring you just, something. I'm feeling lucky. I mean, if it's like if it's like of Pol Pot, okay. If it's like Chat Roulette, then you're basically just sending pictures of your dick to random people via Postmates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's very risky that that company has said delivery for literally no. anything. Because no, usually they I'm, do draw the line somewhere did, like child slave. They did. Okay, <laughs> to be clear, kidney. they didn't yeah. say that. I'm summarizing what they're doing. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. well, what is it? I mean, like <laughs> they said are, specifically, we will bring you a child slave. <laughs> what are they like? This is always the bit I find wild uh, when it's like it's like th th when you get like disruptors disrupting people that have already just disrupted. So it's like, oh, d uh, come on, we're this ancient hobbled company Deliveroo. I'm like, it's like three years old. <laughs> it's like this tiny. Yeah. What are they? What are they proposing to do? Than most of their staff. Well, yeah, exactly. They'll just, they'll just deliver. If you need something from like Robert Dias, they'll just go get it. But like Amazon now exists. Why would you choose that? Um. Because you, you, want to do because you heard it on a economy. podcast. Right. Yeah, you and heard it, it on a podcast. Cool. It's basically not really. I mean, that effectively, then it's just the it's just a guy with a van. I mean, that, that's just so, <laughs> that, that, if it's literally like you can send this guy with a van to get to anywhere you want and tell him what to do. A guy with a van. You've invented Word. a guy with a van. <laughs> Men with van. Um, oh wait, they're going to send a guy. Oh, I don't know. This sounds pretty sus. Uh, I'm, re I'm rethinking my order. Um, but it is also one of these hell firms where, like you. 
go you go work for them and you you don't know not even do you not know where your next hour's paycheck is coming from you don't know where your next 15 minutes paycheck is coming from so you know it's um it's good that all these venture capital firms are in aggregate making the world a better place because they fund like they'll fund a venture a, a, a technology company where you can text someone to say are you okay and start a conversation around mental health um and we're going to get into the workplace aspects of it because in the future everyone will have a salary job but etc et here's the thing <laughs> yeah. this is this is not for you just to subscribe to you don't really often subscribe to ginger can you give me a guess what kind of entity subscribes to ginger your job yep and it makes you participate yep no i'm sad you got it right so fast i was gonna say your mom (laughs) i was thinking about this recently because there was a a story um i just that i shared in my timeline about how the tipping point for the wildcat strikes that or the uh amongst teachers in west virginia that led to a bunch of concessions in uh, 2018 the tipping point was the state employees insurance agency basically forcibly signed them up for a thing where you like have to do a Fitbit, wear a Fitbit and have to report it to your boss. And you also have to like answer a survey about everything you do in life to include your sex life. And if you don't, you get fined like $300 a year for it. But also like there's no, there's no reward for getting it except that like you, you, you get put into a lottery for like an Amazon gift card. And they're just like, <laughs> no, yeah. fucking no, we won't do it. And that, that led to this strike where every County in West Virginia went on strike because of just like how insane, it is but like you can see there is that effect the sort of frog being boiled slowly as the temperature increases very gradually because this stuff starts to become normal the idea that like oh yeah your boss is going to make you sign up for an app that tells you you know that you shouldn't hate your job well um they want to know uh, how much sex you're having yeah well um, yeah the the fitbit wants to know how much sex you're having apparently that if you're a public school teacher in west virginia yeah i don't know why Mm. for me for me i always take my fitbit off before making up. <laughs> Say again, Riley. <laughs> it wants to see if you're fitting your bit. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yes. So, Nate, to answer what you've just said, um, yeah, did you know that 48% of people have cried at work because of stress? You can give your employees and their dependents around the globe an end-to-end behavioral health care solution that will help them feel better and more productive. Wow. That's what health is for. Isn't an end-to-end healthcare solution a colonoscopy? <laughs> well, okay, thank it's, you. It's an ear, nose, Good. and throat colonoscopist. Um, so Damn, NHS cuts. <laughs> I just want to get... Oh, Lord. So I've got two case studies. Um, the first one... Ear, nose, um, throat, and ass. The first, the first one, Will, this, this twigs with quite a bit that you've written. With Ginger, Sephora employees... Sephora is an American makeup store... Um, Sephora employees can discreetly text their coach anytime from anywhere. For example, in the back room of one of our stores, on the bus, at home, or from their desk at work. Sephora's retail team members are constantly on the go, so they need a way to access psychiatry between shifts. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> I love him like the kind of like Jean-Paul Sartre motherfucker working at Sephora who's like they keep asking me how to get that perfect Monday glow but all I can think of is the glow of the meaningless of our existence <laughs> <laughs> there was so, a thing recently about that Alexa had to learn certain answers to these kind of questions there was people kept asking their Alexa what is the meaning of life and all this kind of stuff and I don't know I guess Amazon had to sort of come up with some particular answer to that. But. <laughs> and Alexa had to say, fulfill your purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Keep using Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> so, Will, what do, you, what do you think of this idea? Consume. Of, what do you think of this idea of therapy being something that you consume in two-minute increments in between sort of your two different jobs because one of your jobs is making you do it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 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 horrifying. I mean, it's funny. So I wrote a book called The Happiness Industry, which came out in 2015. And I must have finished writing it probably in 2014. And things have got so much worse in the last five years. Um, what? No. I mean, I, I had on. some... You know, <laughs> Steve, no, Steve Pinker of, would say, uh, say the opposite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but specifically in relation to this kind of industry, this sort of, sort of combination of sort of surveillance capital, um, sort of... N- Kind of half-baked neural theories of of, of happiness and contentment mixed with um, a kind of twenty-four-seven all-engulfing um, sort of dissolution of work into life. Basically, I mean that that's been kind of ongoing for quite a long time. And I mean, I think there's, I mean, in a way, a lot of what's really kind of tragic about a lot of this stuff is that uh, you know the, the sort of early science of stress was really kind of quite well motivated in an effort to try and understand why does work kind of harm people in various ways. Um, And a lot of that same science ended up being subverted in various ways and grasped and turned into a a, a basis for for, for new sources of profit and new ways of trying to kind of keep people working as efficiently as possible as much of the time as possible. Um, And of course, you know, yeah, um, smartphones and uh, uh, AI and all this sort of stuff kind of only expands the frontier for 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 keeping tabs on people and, and treating people even more. But yeah, the idea of, of of sort of turning therapy into something you consume in in tiny little chunks in that way is just sort of grim beyond belief. I mean, it's um, yeah, I hadn't heard of this one. It really is like the clippy thing. I mean, Nate Nate said it earlier, but it really is the clippy thing of just like it's not really therapy. It's um, it's kind of just getting a little pep. Yeah. Between like, you know, when you're feeling shit in a job that you're kind of forced to be in or like just those things that keep you working and keep your body functioning. Just do cocaine like a normal person. (laughs) That's what bathroom breaks are for. (laughs) Um, And I have one more. Uh, Hussein, bite down on something. (laughs) He's got a full fist in his mouth. You're clear to go. I'm fisting myself right now. We believe in offering a range of benefits and mental health solutions for our employees. That's why last year we launched Ginger's mobile-enabled solution, which offers real-time coaching to everyone who works for us in the U.S. The services have been well-received, and it was a natural step to expand this offering to additional BuzzFeed offices in other parts of the world. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> this was why you asked about the the, uh, the document that I signed. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder if my 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 uh, my uh, thing would have changed if, um, if I had access to two-minute therapy between being told by my editors that my copy wasn't good enough. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm not. Want to form fine. a union? I'm, no, I'm okay. don't do that. Text a coach. Right. right. I mean, yeah, we saw, we spoke about this and like, um, you know, the whole like reeling from like, so, you know, the whole like BuzzFeed thing, they're still going through the whole unionization process. And part of that unionization kind of came because uh, most of the offices had signed up to these. Um, they signed up to like a, I think they called the service like Headspace, which is again like one of these like online therapy things, but it works via Skype. So you would still be talking to someone, but um, it would be for like a very set amount of time. And it would also be like tailored towards your employment. So in some of the BuzzFeed offices, like you can only access like that kind of therapy if you're a staff member, which means that if you're a freelancer or if you're a contractor, then like you, there are no obligations for them, for them or any sort of media company to provide those types of things, even if you are providing the same, if not more work than like 
contracted staff members that's well, when it, you actually get clippy when you're a freelancer yes yeah well you know I st- <laughs> oh it looks like you're suicidal <laughs> <laughs> i love clippy's voice is actually mickey mouse's yeah. voice <laughs> one other thing i say about this whole industry actually and i say this as an academic it, i just sort of particularly aware that some of the really culpable parties in all of this obviously it's the the venture capitalists and the the bastards who are kind of building these companies in the first place but they always or they tend to have an extremely highly paid um, academic psychologist from you know Yale or Harvard or somewhere like that who is willing to completely prostitute their reputation in favor to make huge amounts of equities and mm-hmm. and 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 payments and so on uh to say to 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 you know endorse this kind of stuff by some sort of spurious thing about this is backed by science i mean that's mm. where loads of these kind of happiness apps and so on one of the ways they market themselves is hey we've got science this isn't just some kind of bullshit mm. from silicon valley or um cambridge <laughs> massachusetts we've actually got science on our side and that's one of the things that has really kind of pushes this stuff and that's the way they convince employers to kind of roll this stuff out is to say yeah you know well we've got all this data about the fact that stress kind of hits your bottom line in all this kind of way from economists, but we've also got these new neuroscientists and psychiatrists who will actually endorse the fact that actually a two-minute mm. kind of exchange of text messages from someone in, with someone in Colombia who's working on two dollars an hour or whatever it is is actually going to kind of get them back to work more productive instantly. And and these people are doing this stuff; they're not doing it publicly, but it's the same kind of uh, circuit of expertise, just like the economists who were basically doing work for banks pre pre two thousand eight, saying that your products are safe, and then advising credit rating agencies the same thing. You now have a of psychologists and psychiatrists who are making similar sums of money by doing the same thing in this kind of what you could call a kind of neuro-industrial complex that mm. has developed. So they, those people have got a lot to answer for as well. Hello, I'm Jeff Science and I approve this message. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just to close out this segment, I, I, I was searching for some more stuff on Ginger and I found a review of Ginger, I, uh, Ginger the company, on a site called realwaystoearnmoneyonline.com. Um, mm. <laughs> and Seems it, legit. The title of the article is Work at Home in the Mental Health Industry. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, tired of wow. being a horny mom in someone's area <laughs> <laughs> who makes $500 a month from home. <laughs> just do- googling oh shit. Just yeah, yeah. just desultorily telling people, "Nah, it's fine." What if your boss is like your friend or whatever? Uh, and you want uh, $500 fine. a day. Do you want to have no strings attached sex now we're done with the therapy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they don't do that. Okay. So, that was Ginger. Um and I'd like to shift you have gears to contact a little bit. The delivery guys for that. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I'd like, to, I'd like to shift gears a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I would indeed. Uh, welcome to a drastic. Welcome to the drastic change in tone siren. Um, <laughs> so we're also here to talk a little bit about your book, Will, which has been out for a while. And yeah. there's a very good in-depth conversation that you have with Alex Doherty on politi- politics theory other, which right. if you want to hear a detailed conversation about the theory and the details of, of the book and how it proceeds, I suggest you listen to. There were actually uh, well, two episodes, actually. Isn't it? Yeah, it's a, t- it's a two-parter. Fans. It's a two-parter <laughs> for the heads, for the Will heads out there. Um <laughs> So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of summarize it, summarize some of the core arguments of like how it works, mm. and then we're going to play with applying some of its concepts to the world of late 2019, which is mm. considerably different from the <laughs> from the from the nostalgic uplands of early 2019. <laughs> Damn! Remember those halcyon days? Yeah, Theresa um, May. Yeah. So yeah. this. Um, <laughs> 
This book is in called Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. And number one, Will, just to start us off, hmm. I've heard facts don't care about my feelings. Has Ben Shapiro <laughs> misled me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was one of the... So, I mean, the book came about because the, the sort of storm of 2016 of, of, of a sort of panic around what was happening to facts. And uh, and yeah, you're, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro position on on, on snowflakes and, and campus free speech wars and all that kind of stuff had been raging, obviously, for a, for a while. Um, one thing which I thought was kind of missing from a lot of those debates about post-truth and these sorts of panics was any sort of historical or, or, or much philosophical understanding of what they were trying to defend in the first place. I mean, uh, so that's one of the things I try to do in the book is, is to show that actually facts are uh, quite kind of difficult things to uh, assemble and organize and 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 produce in the first place and they require uh, quite a lot of work you know they are social constructs just as someone like Ben Shapiro might fear um and mm-hmm. um just as the the particular conditions can exist for you know creating so what are you talk about sort of you know why do economic facts no longer seem to kind of work to win arguments in the same way anymore like you know gdp growth and unemployment and this sort of stuff is that when society changes the way in which we try and kind of grasp reality changes. Um, and one of the main arguments in the book is that the spread of digital technology um, in our economy and our society over the last 20 years has meant that we have an increasingly real-time understanding of, 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 of what reality consists of, which means that how we sense the world um, with our um, in, in a in a um, uh, both a, a sort of physical way an emotional way um, a, a sentimental way it has become a kind of all important way of, of of how we understand the world um, and so in that sense facts have been sort of usurped in certain respects which doesn't mean that they they no longer count or are no longer true in certain ways you've heard it here first folks facts no longer true. <laughs> Um, mm. so I think this, that's a very, that's a very good way to start about like how, um, the, the idea even that of a fact is something that's much more contentious than someone like Ben Shapiro might like to claim yeah. it is because for him, um, the facts are just the stuff he likes and yeah. his feelings about the world. Like, um, to Ben Shapiro, it's a fact that Palestinians love living in an open air prison. They just can't get enough of it. And the reason <laughs> that they love it is because they currently are. And, and they get it, to fly all those kites and tie yeah, rope to fence. They get to fly <laughs> kites and rope do rope tie defense. Um, and uh, for us saying that, like, you know, there is an occupation of Palestine, well, that's a feeling, that's an emotion because it's something he doesn't mm. like. And yeah. before we sort of go into some of the more theoretical workings, I think one of the core takeaways of this book is that a lot of the things that have been heralded as the... Uh, as the enlight- tradition of enlightenment reason and all of mm. these very high-flown forms of empiricism or whatever, rather than b- it being um, sort of more true than anything else, it's just the sort of the feelings of the ruling class which have been turned into universalisms, uh, which I, is something I took from it. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, um, and I don't, I, I barely, I don't really sort of um, talk about the Enlightenment as such much in the book. I mean, there's obviously, you, you know, there is this whole kind of, I guess, what came out of the new atheist movement of the of the sort of early two thousands of of Dawkins, Hitchens, and Kahn, which so on, so which is now kind of in the age of social media, has, has sort of turned into the kind of dark web people of of, <laughs> of um, uh, Stephen Pinker and 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 Peterson and so on, who have sort of now sort of you know claimed to be sort of warriors for for Enlightenment values and 
certain respects and it's all kind of gone a bit kind of absurd in lots of ways whereas i suppose what i i was sort of interested in doing in the book was was showing that um i mean i think so expertise i mean experts are um necessarily a uh a, a, a minority group who produces claims about the world that people uh, have to um, accept or are expected to accept more broadly. Um, and this sort of, um, this is a, a political settlement, which is that we will uh, respect the authority of certain types of small mainly self-selecting, self-appointed groups to tell us how the world is in certain ways. Now, this is absolutely crucial, and it's crucial, I think I think it's more crucial to the left than it is to the right, actually, that this, this thing works, because the left depends on being able to take control of things like the economy, and right now, even more of an emergency, things like um, uh, uh, the energy um, infrastructure of the world. Mm. Um, and therefore, it's absolutely crucial that people who actually are able to sort of grasp how these sorts of systems work in their entirety are listened to and taken seriously because if all we do is just sort of you know rely on sort of folk wisdom of of people who say well it doesn't look that way to me like the president of the united states Mm. um then 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 we really are quite fucked but we also have to recognize that that uh, authority of those small largely self-appointed self-selecting groups to be taken seriously in public debates is a political achievement it's not something which is just sort of god given or sort of came about because you know um sort of white bourgeois men in the 18th century were just intrinsically superior than others it was something that was um uh, that, that was established partly through violence partly through um uh, uh, economic and political power um the, the sort of ambivalence that I think many people on the left feel towards expertise right now is that on the one hand we can see quite how um, sort of um, how much privilege there is in, in, invested in it uh, also quite how much violence um, was involved in its foundation and its in its development but also quite how dependent we are on it right now to get out of a, a of a catastrophic situation uh, with with our climate and with our economy hmm so uh, I'd like to take it back for a, for a moment. I'd like to come back to the climate bit uh, towards the end because I think that's something yeah. we have to never stop talking about. But I just want to um, trace a little bit through history, the sort of political evolution of the idea as you set it out mm. in your book. So we talk about sort of several key philosophical um, dichotomies that become yeah. core to the liberal worldview. And there is the distinction between uh, reason and emotion or mind and body yeah. um, and the distinction between war and peace. And yeah. that both of these distinctions involve a kind of homo economicus, the human as self-regarding, utility-maximizing calculator machine, which is a very elegant and easy way to abstract mm-hmm. human behavior so it can be tidally theorized. And the only drawback to it is that it's completely wrong. Um, and the core, <laughs> liberal, the core liberal contention is that this desirable world is a reason-driven one in which people choose to be at peace with one another because more of their desires, which just, by the way, arise from them innately and we can't think about why they come, where they come from or why they're there or what they are, they're just desires as such, will be fulfilled by these calculators. And only an emotional person would choose to, say, add war to this situation by being anything different from that core liberal contention. And therefore, the liberal project has been one of essentially designating one thing reason and another thing emotion and then suppressing the latter because it's not reason. And so rationality. That's why Rod Little thinks we need to have a good war. <laughs> so we can, rationality. We can avoid war entirely yeah. by giving everyone two minutes of like therapy every day, right? Yeah. 
So rationality. Can you, can you imagine if the the Austrian army had just given two minutes of therapy to Adolf Hitler, you know, while he was fighting in the trenches? I mean, yeah, he, in the, mm. imagine what kind of progress could have been made. Yeah, yeah. all I of mean, the Nazis, all of the Nazis wouldn't have made the mistake of supporting him. I mean, he wouldn't have yeah. com- he wouldn't have committed suicide because he would have known that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> they gave him an Iron Cross when all he really needed was two minutes of therapy. Um, so rationality, with a better understanding of his emotional self, maybe you'd have gotten into art school. You know, so, I was going to say these are all questions. So, how so, do you fail forward in a bunker, though? I don't know. <laughs> so essentially, rationality, fact, peace, and so on. These things are all just stand-ins for deference to the status quo. Well, I mean, you know, some of what you said there is is it doesn't you know is is true of of a, I guess a kind of very market-driven neoliberal society, this idea that um, of, of a sort of almost like a kind of robotic um, mental rationality of people who just sort of act like that kind of homo economicus that you described. I mean, in my book, I go back to the origins of, of, of the modern state and modern politics and um, back in the mid-17th century to look at the, I guess the kind of vision which derived from philosophers I discussed in the book, like Thomas Hobbes and René Descartes, was... So how do we how do we bring both society and nature as well under the dominion of the human mind effectively? I mean that's quite a kind of um, uh, well it's an ambitious but it's also in some ways a kind of tyrannical project in in, in certain respects and it certainly has in the long run yielded disastrous ecological consequences. The idea that nature can become something which is because it's sort of outside of, because it's sort of separate from mental reason is therefore sort of of no intrinsic value and can just be in, it's sort of infinitely plundered. It's just, that's a sort of consequence of that of that of that philosophy uh, in the political realm, and this is the where the question of war and peace comes about. Effectively, the argument is in the work of Thomas Hobbes is that until there's peace, then you can't have any other type of good. You can't have commerce. You can't have the arts. You can't have intellectual inquiry and so on. Therefore. The state has one very simple foundational function, which is to deliver peace at all costs. And 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 the at all costs is absolutely crucial to, to how this argument works, is that even if the state has to turn into something really kind of fearsome and um, utterly undemocratic, I mean, this was very pre-democratic times, um, then as long as the state is delivering peace, then there's nothing that can be said against it or done against it. Um, and, and these are sort of ways, um, and, and quite violent ways, really, of establishing the condition of, yeah, what we now recognize as liberalism and what later became kind of free market capitalism and all sorts of other things that have developed. But those were the sort of parameters that set it down at the beginning. Um, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that, that those parameters have, have become kind of increasingly shaky in certain respects, um, partly because it's no longer really clear. I mean, you know, this is partly because when we talk about mind and body or reason and emotion, things like, I mean, not just, I mean, well preceding the neurosciences, but the neurosciences over the last sort of 25 years have been kind of breaking that down quite, quite, quite rapidly. But I mean, Freud and, and, and Nietzsche and others in the 19th century also were very suspicious of the idea that that, that, that our sort of rational minds and our bodies were separate from each other. Um, and then in the work, realm of war and peace, you sort of take something like drone warfare, you know, dro- drone strikes, are they kind of acts of sort of civil policing of, 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 of criminals or are they acts of war because they don't involve of declarations of war, um, you know, they're, they're sort of weird things that sort of hover between the realm of of civil society and and military combat. And there's a whole and, and equally as is information war and the sorts of things that that people believe have subverted democracies uh, um, over the last sort of four or five years, thanks to uh, sort of bots and you know fake news and, and and the Kremlin and so on. So so that's the sort of kind of core argument of the book is that some of those kind of foundations that liberalism uh, was built on, which were sort of 
kind of sort of unspokenly violent a lot of the time, but 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 nevertheless sort of succeeded in their own ways. Um, are, are, are no longer working, and therefore, in some ways, the sort of have they've had to become more kind of nakedly violent in order to to persist. I think drone strikes sort of inhabit the same kind of sphere of activity of like some of the activities of the jackass crew, just sort of like putting bees on your dick or whatever. It's like you're not exactly <laughs> clear what the overall aim is, but someone's dick hurts. Yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about drone strikes. You were talking about ginger actually earlier because I mean, one of the kind of great problems with drone strikes is I mean, there's a sort of similar thing going on where the, the guy operating the drone is kind of sitting in a kind of bunker in the Nevada desert, meanwhile, and, and sort of watching someone who is in Afghanistan kind of, you know, interacting with his family and his kids and his colleagues and so on and could be watching him for like six months and then eventually so a lot of these drone strike operatives end up kind of getting post-traumatic stress mm. disorder themselves because they end up kind of getting to know someone quite well through watching them from a drone for months and yeah. months and months and then basically get ordered to assassinate them um mm. So they now are replacing drone strike operatives with bots precisely because bots don't need uh, so much therapy after they've pulled the trigger. No, I mean, this is serious. Oh, so, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Kremlin so bots. What we need is to sort of, you know, bring together ginger with the kind of drone strike operative industry. <laughs> You're so close to just like being able to leave your job and become a startup guy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the last, is the last job ever left in 21st century capitalism going to be, there'll be like an AI that therapizes everyone, but that AI itself will get quite sad at doing that job and there'll be mm. one human psychiatrist left to have a big conversation no, no, with this kind of there'll be one bot Robo that Melfi. gives therapy to everyone but because it relies on everyone's de like data within 10 minutes it will become like a nazi <laughs> <laughs> i'm just imagining the drone strike operator being like damn uh you know 70 years ago my great grandfather was killing himself in a bunker and here i am in a bunker killing other people we live in a society yeah, it certainly does go around <laughs> I was so, going to add one thing in just Riley for, yeah, for context for too. another thing beyond the video feed with drones, but a significant amount of drone um, intelligence they gather that way is via radio and telephone intercepts. And so they listen to conversations hours on end. And obviously like most times they're translated or they might be reading um, text feeds of the translations, but they absolutely get to know people because yeah. of the fact that like you have to monitor everything they talk about and all their phone calls and all their, you know, walkie talkie transmissions, which might be about like doing, you know, militant militant stuff it might also be about their families and so like absolutely yeah, yeah. there's this weird kind traumatic. of yeah absolutely mm. there's this kind of panopticon sort of element to it of um of having to ha having to be i don't know embedded in someone's life like that but then obviously it's like wait for them to say the magic word that's like considered you know positive idea that they can then initiate a yeah. missile strike on them I was and, and, it, and it really messes with a kind of basic sort of uh, notion of, of of combat where um kind of anonymity as you when you're kind of killing as a soldier the mm. fact that there is a sort of kind of you're just killing a sort of member of a sort of mass body um is a sort of it's not it's not a it's not a moral justification but certainly it's a sort of psychological kind of prop in certain ways that this is sort of you know it's then, far and, more intimate this way yeah, in yeah way. totally i mean yeah. and it's and, and it doesn't obey the kind of norms of 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 combat as they date back centuries because it involves that identification of someone and, uh, and so it's stakes. much closer to an assassination the stakes as well there's also the additional you know that you're if you're remote from it then there's no there's there's none of that implicit well like oh it was me or them because yeah. like it's just like well no well, it didn't have to be me well, because yeah, I just yeah, because people, I, th I think also there, there, you know, famously there was discussion about this in the Vietnam War that um, people who were basically marksmen or snipers who had to look down scopes and shoot people 
were very psychologically damaged by this because the fact that they, like there was that intimacy to it, there was like that understanding that it wasn't a blob, you know, in their sights. It was absolutely like a person. And similarly with this, like some people seem to think that trauma from something like this can only come from seeing something like movie style traumatic, like you saw an explosion or you saw a dead body, or you. But but really in this case, it's more. It's such a deliberate act of killing that it mm. causes so much more damage. And in a way, it's. I, I realize that we've kind of we've kind of like open parentheses here, but there's something very strangely. I don't know, dystopian about that we live in a world where, like what you just said, Will, that the person doing that could be, we could notionally not be committing an act of war or could have been told, oh, this is like we're, we're in a peacetime situation, but this is something that's like vital mm-hmm. to national security. But to the person doing it, it's as intense as any, you know, think of the scene in Saving Private Ryan of the guy literally like the knife fight in a corridor in a building, you know, where like mm-hmm. someone has to stab another person. Like emotionally yeah. speaking, it's, it's of the same intensity, mm-hmm. but it's been abstracted to this thing that somehow... I don't know that that, that that seems like it's just like delivery with missiles. We need to make it easier on drone operators by immediately before they have to assassinate someone, just playing them like a highlight reel of all like the worst shit that the person they could have ever said. For, like, like the bit where they talk about how they think Entourage for- is actually a really good show. And they're like, yeah, fuck it. Hit the button. He's, he's gone. Um, yeah. Also, three clips of them saying espresso or whatever the, yeah. <laughs> whatever the Arabic version but in also, that case. Also, I'm thinking- calling it a Westcott. Yeah, thinking a little more also about the person being drone struck as well. Um, that <laughs> I love the ACD song, one of my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so we're um, thinking a little bit more about that as well, right? Like, I think one of the other things we can think about of neoliberalism uh, as the neoliberal state, the difference between the liberal and the neoliberal state is that the neoliberal state has eradicated the barrier between uh, war and peace, uh, just as it also has been eradicating the barriers between, say, reason and emotion and so on, that these dichotomies have been breaking down because they no longer work. So I, are we, when we are doing drone strikes, like the, the idea that we, if this is a, pe- if a peacetime policing action or an act of war, that's no longer an important distinction, just as um, the neoliberal state is also in a constant act of war against everybody inside the state. It doesn't deem worthy of protection. So if you're a different color or too poor or not physically able, um, the, the neoliberal state essentially is grinding you into dust for for reasons. Um, and that I, I, I think that this is, this should be seen as inherently traumatic, that it is... It you is, do get to be in a pretty lit Olympics opening ceremony, though. So <laughs> you know, well, that's what the, that's what I was saying. That, that's what I thought was interesting about the book. That I think there were points, particularly in the second half, where it made me reconsider what my view of like culture wars were. And I always used to think culture wars were this almost like distraction that the right would instigate to be able to try and move from economic issues to move to other issues. But like, I think particularly what you're saying about trauma and PTSD made me feel that it's actually. Um, it's actually a, a necessity that the right have to engage in these things because they have to delegitimize like very valid, va- very valid critiques of the system. And so it's not an attempt to move the conversation away from economics, but it's an attempt to destroy a critique of of the economics. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I suppose I was, um, th- you know, I wasn't really. I suppose when I was talking about the, the sort of some of the kind of ask things, like, I, I mean, I talk a bit about post traumatic stress disorder in the in the book. Um, one of the things, which is, I suppose, one of the ways the reasons I was interested in post traumatic stress disorder is um i just think it's there's a whole discussion in the book about pain um 
and uh, the sort of physical aspects of, of suffering, which I think have really come to the fore within the way in which highly unequal capitalist societies such as our own have, have, have the injustices of those societies have become increasingly sort of uh, physiologically manifest in various ways. Um, you know, mortality rates I talk a bit about in the book, but also sort of, you know, morbidity rates and rates of suffering from pain. And there's this famous thing in America called the Case-Deaton effect, which is they these these um, economists discovered that, that there was a sort of massive spike in the number of deaths going on in, in particular working class um, parts of the United States. And this was, um, and then they looked into why and they discovered that it was what they call deaths of despair, mm-hmm. which was um, to do with suicide poisoning of various kinds, mostly opiates, um, and um, uh, uh, and then other sort of, you know, lung diseases and heart disease and so on. But a lot of it was um, uh, in some ways kind of a, a sort of psychosomatic phenomenon, really, of, of people who've just felt that their lives had lost meaning, had lost control over their lives. Um, and then I suppose the other thing which was interested me in the book was, well... 2016, Britain had its Brexit referendum and there was that famous slogan about take back control. And I'd been thinking a lot about in the book about what, so over the course of 2016, 17, about what is this kind of fantasy of control and what what does a loss of control actually mean? And one of the things that I was looking into post-traumatic stress disorder was, I think, quite an interesting um, uh, finding in some of the research on this is that um, people can suffer fairly similar types of traumas, say, to car accidents that are that are similar in terms of mm. the, the pain that results and the injury that results. But if you're trapped in the aftermath, you can your chance of suffering PTSD is much higher than if you just walk straight out of the, the, the wreckage. Um, and equally, people can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder from being in long-term abusive relationships or from being in other types of situations where they have no say, no control, no power, and so on. And, and eventually that manifests itself in physiological and, and, and neurological ways. And I think what is interesting about all of that is that it, it demonstrates, I mean, I'm really not that interested in what the sort of the right has to, I mean, I know, you know, there is the, the sort of the right and the culture war are obsessed with the idea that, that, that being triggered is a kind of, you know, sort of millennial kind of um, uh, fantasy. Well, there's a whole um, pod about it. Right, of course there is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Who can forget um, and very powerful um, two of our foremost uh, 21st century philosophers <laughs> yeah that's right yeah um and uh, but anyway but i was sort of interested in it, in, in the sort of reality of it in terms of what that might tell us about how sort of politics and, and injustice works yeah. really um but i think that throughout the book there are all these different notions of of of, of sort of con- you know what is control control is real time um is real time power it's a, it's the ability to 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 exercise things in in, in a kind of dynamic um perpetual fashion and it's also a fantasy of of the military as well which is of of, of the ability to be able to control troops while they're in the in the field on the ground and so on and many of the um uh the, the, come back coming back to the, the the point that riley was making about sort of the the kind of intermingling of war and peace in 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 everyday sort of American civil society, um, you think of companies like Peter Thiel's Palantir, which I, I talk a bit about in the book, which is effectively mm. a sort of you know it's a it's a data analytics company. It spots patterns of suspicious behaviour, is what effectively it does. It has contracts with police forces around the world, but it also has contracts with militaries around the world. It has contracts with um, uh, intelligence services around the world. What it effectively says is that we will help you keep control over a fast moving, frightening world where 
where you don't know what's in other people's minds, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, the facial recognition technologies are control technologies. They are attempts to try and keep control over people who might be hostile towards you. And this is in some ways the sort of the governing fantasy of our, of our times, I think. And also tell you which people have blood which might sustain you. He's big on that. That's him, isn't he? Yeah. The whole, this whole idea of control is one I think is very interesting because neoliberal because neoliberalism is essentially a society based entirely on risk management um it, it, it all of this control is to manage risk the problem is is that all of the risks are you people and Whoa. so if you are society so if you're but it, it means like you could you could if you're living in like northern pakistan you could go about your life in a normal way and if you accidentally behave in some certain yeah. ways that have been decided by the risk managers are risky then you could just be dead because yeah. someone in a in a bunker mm. in nevada pushes a button and the problem is you know that you have to go through your life wondering if what you're doing is adding evidence to some invisible dossier somewhere that's going to result in your instant and completely unexpected death. Um, and I, I imagine that must be ludicrously traumatic, just waking up every day and living like that. Yeah. I mean, no, absolutely. I mean, how, how to beat the algorithm. I mean, stop, <laughs> Fuck. I mean do, what, what, what kind of newspaper do terrorists read? I better not read that one. Yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. I mean, it's similar to how people have to worry about their credit rating, credit ratings if they're from particular, um, you know, live in particular neighborhoods or, 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 or from particular minorities. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Every time there's some kind of disturbance in the area, this one Muslim guy dials 911 into his phone. <laughs> We're pretty sure. <laughs> Better get rid of him just to be we sure. You know what's even crazier too, Riley? I don't know if you know this, but uh, drones are loud. And, and when they're at their sort of like monitoring altitude, you can definitely hear them, especially some of the, uh, the earlier generations. And so pe people in, in places like like Hyderabad-Nawa or uh, was it the Northwest Frontier Province uh, or in, in, pa in Pakistan, <laughs> they can hear these things all day. They sound like lawnmowers in the sky. They know they're there. And it's like, is today my day that I'm going to get hit by a missile because it, it, there's there's it, there's zero way of, of convincing yourself that they're not there because like they're really loud yeah. and so it's just like imagine that day in and day out if you live in like i don't know like miram shah or something like that like somewhere right on the border and that's but that that that's just has become been reality for the last i don't know 18 years Finally, I mean, it's kind of maybe. interesting that we've, we've ended up talking about drones because there's a sort of in some ways i think i mean there's a fantastic surveillance scholar called mark andreevich who's written a paper about what he calls the droning of human experience where he basically argues that the the, the drone is like a sort of a kind of a, an icon of, uh, of 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 what is of how capitalism works effectively mm -hmm. now you know is that 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 sense that is today my day and you know i know i'm being watched but i nothing i can do about it has become a sort of a sensibility that although that you're not probably going to get shot um uh, mm -hmm. in, in in most of those situations you might get killed very there slowly. is a sort of well, you yeah, get, and you, you might end you, up sort of being put in the wrong kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, if there are, say, I mean, I remember someone telling me with great shock about um, 15 years ago, 10, no, less than that, probably like 10 years ago. Oh, did you know that the Tesco Club Card has 18,000 different categories of, 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 of shopper that it tries to put people into? Well, this was this was before social media had really kind of taken off and smartphones. And so now, it, then it turned out that Donald Trump had a million different types of voter that he was, uh, well, he, the, we were about the, to say the, we had like a million types of Tesco Club Card. <laughs> 
the size of the group you're getting put into is just getting yeah. smaller and smaller and smaller each time I use this one for buying chocolate raisins <laughs> folks no one's correlating my purchases other presidents you'll see they're going into Tesco they're buying incriminating combinations of things very sad people it's a failure okay you, you're planning a Christmas party you don't want Tesco to know you buy in one Tesco one product another Tesco the other I've got a different cloud card for each I'm not missing out on the points well this is you know what this is uh, it reminds me of uh, you know in, in Baudrillard he talks about the map of empire right where an empire and a set of, there's an empire and a set of cartographers draw a map of the empire so detailed that it eventually it becomes a one one to one representation of the empire and covers right. every inch yeah. of its territory in effect, like the the droning of human life, the constant surveillance has turned the sort of abstraction of human behavior into the map of empire of everyone. That's absolutely where, right. No, that that is the that is the big data kind of dream, basically. Is and, you won't have to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say you won't have to consult a well, an expert or a or a or a, or a report or a, any kind of document. You will basically have the actual thing kind of there to to, to scrape mm. and analyze. And it's the death of abstraction at that point because mm. right now everyone needs some kind of abstraction, whether that is people <laughs> voting for representatives in a parliament or governments or companies consulting experts and trying to infer things from models to peer forward into the future. But as these technologies advance and as surveillance and droning and these control technologies become more and more well tighter and more complex mm. then the fact is there will be five experts you know Elon Musk Jeff Bezos and you know whoever else invents the next like you know postmates or whatever the three remaining members of Hansen yeah the three <laughs> remaining members of Hansen but only three members of Hansen well they're and still they all remain they were all very anti Brexit all the members of Hansen what I'm saying what I'm saying is that is that they will that they abstraction will be for everyone to try to make sense of what the people with all the information are going to do yeah. because they know everything. And th the other word know. for that is called conspiracy theory. I mean, this is the problem is that when you know that lots of people know something, but they're not telling you it, then what else have you got to go on than conspiracy theory fundamentally? And mm. I think that, you know, there is a, a, a sort of, we are living in an age of, of rampant conspiracy theories. Um, and I think it's rising. All of which are correct. And that is, <laughs> oh no, only I know which ones are correct. Um, and, uh, um, but this is, I think, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that, you know, it, there are certain aspects of the original promise of expertise that, if if you're worried about facts and you're worried about truth, as some of these kind of dark web people claim to be and so on, then go and look at what are the preconditions of liberal facts and liberal truth, which include properly funded, publicly funded public universities, publicly funded public broadcasters, you know, these sorts of things is that if you don't want knowledge and facts to turn into weapons in the hands of private entities trying to destroy each other, which is effectively the kind of Silicon Valley model, um, where, you know, Facebook even has built an entire um, uh, 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 app, which tells it every single time a startup develops somewhere in the valley that might threaten it so that it can buy it and shut it down. Um, this is a sort of the type the of warfare Renner. App was ironically picked <laughs> up by. Oh yeah, Jeremy Renner made 1.3 billion dollars. <laughs> it's getting too popular. We can't risk it. Everyone on it um, looks the same. The <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the the physical effect of this torture. Before we sort of go into like future implications um, of this torture and this knowledge that the torture could happen at any time has actually produces strange political potentials. So this is from your book. 
the nervous system, which produces pain, arousal, stress, excitement, becomes the main organ of political activity. It is as feeling creatures that we become susceptible to the contagions of sentiment, not as the intellectuals, critics, or scientists, or even as citizens. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that again, this is the sort of... Um I mean, what this is partly about the the extent to which we've become immersed in um, in a real time economy in a real time public sphere by the fact that um, our lives have been basically digitized, or at least certainly the the, the, the media of our of our social lives have, have been have been digitized, um, and that therefore the sort of um, you know the, the nervous system uh, and the brain were important kind of um, models or analogs for the development of digital computers and for cybernetics in the 1940s and 1950s. Because these the theorists of these sort of things were fascinated in the way in which you could have a kind of real-time command system, such as uh, the human nervous system. Um, and in a way, the sort of, you know, the technologies and the biology have become kind of enmeshed in various ways. I talk in the book a bit about uh, the, the Zuckerberg, um, well, it's not a fantasy because he's, he's investing huge amounts of money in, in doing it to try and kind of have brain reading uh, devices so that you could sort of send thought directly from one person to another without having to even text or speak or move. Brain reading. Um, it's just what I call reading. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that 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 you know this is i think um as much of the, the the sort of panic surrounding the rise of emotions and sentimentality in our society which is so often kind of blamed on 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 snowflakes whatever it might be is that yeah i think we the, the emotions and sentiment have developed a much uh, more important function in our society than they did uh, 20 years ago but that's partly to do with the way in which our society has been basically rewired and I think that rewiring has had a very enervating effect for a lot of people who have found themselves at some of the most comfortable. So there's also been this very good uh, Guardian article in the long read called The Radicalization of Remain. And I'm going to read a bit from it now of, of how this has worked on people who in the past haven't been driven crazy. Remainists feel embattled and ignored. They lament what their country has become, feeling that politicians who are meant to be on their side and media organizations that are meant to present facts impartially have betrayed them. A.C. Grayling, a philosopher who has become one of the most outspoken, described to me how he spends a half hour on Twitter each morning while on his exercise bike. Normally, I start off quite slowly, he said, (laughs) but as he gets annoyed by the latest Brexit news, he finds himself going faster and faster and faster and faster. (laughs) Okay, how do you exercise with that haircut? Just a brief, (laughs) just as a side note. I I, I have a story about A.C. Grayling about why he blocks me, and he blocked me because I said that the A.C. stood for anime connoisseur. (laughs) And he just was sprinting on his treadmill because he was so furious. Now I'm just visualizing him on his like little Peloton bike because like getting mad at me. Um, so, um, so, Will, he, so why bar. does he look so much like Lord Farquaad? Just please, <laughs> just explain it to me. I don't. But, but Will, before you explain why he looks like Lord Farquaad, can you can you sort of like what do you what do you think of this idea that more and more people are getting more and more enervated, and these people who believed well, themselves immune are not? Well, uh, I suppose one thing which is interesting to me about that is the fact that he actually he 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 um he he mentions it because it might be that he was always <laughs> enervated by it, but but I think that culturally um something is changing where being physically moved by something has become a kind of marker of its of its of its sort of in, sincerity and its and its intensity, um and that if you just sort of you know unless you unless you actually kind of are pedaling faster and faster and faster then maybe you're just you know maybe who, who's to say that this is actually the, the case I mean I, I'm I'm really fascinated by a particular genre of Twitter content which is people 
videoing on their phones members of their family having some kind of emotional experience because they're being told about they're, un- they're sort of unwrapping something oh the or soldier one comes home and his dog loves him or whatever yeah yeah and mm-hmm. but, but also people kind of like doing these weird setups where they're like right I'm about to tell my fiance that I'm taking her to Dubai not to Rome for her birthday oh my did God. you see that no, one no and the worst <laughs> is and the worst is I was in a um comedy sketch with that so he's a he's a YouTube comedian but I was he did a BBC oh, sketch and I was in a <laughs> I'm sketch not about to offend your friend no 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 well, I don't I don't know him I only met him for that day for like 10 minutes but I was mortified when I saw that because it was like my girl, yeah, because he, 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 like, he was taking us to some quite nice European city. Yeah, yeah, it was like, secret- oh, we're going to go to Sophia. And I'm <laughs> like, right. I'd love to go to like. <laughs> um, but, then, but then he secretly was actually going to take a Dubai. Yeah. Um, and mm. he basically had his phone the out videoing place. her as he as he revealed yeah. this amazing upgrade of her holiday from a really fascinating and and, 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 and sort of romantic yeah. European city to In- a place where you can't really kind of, you know, get it anyway. But, to a place um, where if you were to accidentally get pregnant, they'd probably put you in jail. <laughs> so that's good for you. You love jail. But, but what interests me about that is that, you know, effectively what you're doing is getting this kind of content of spontaneous physical reaction. That spontaneous physical reaction is the sort of gold mm. which circulates in a in a world where there is a kind of massive overabundance of content and, and nearly all of it's bullshit. The stuff that can actually gain you some kind of viral traction it involves a impulsive, unthinking, un unplanned physical reaction the other one which I mm. was kind of quite sweet but again why was someone videoing it was this is my granny watching the final over of the cricket world cup and she was started leaping around the room and this sort of stuff so clearly someone had kind of started videoing it with a view to getting clicks oh, or something I mean yeah. it's just really this strange is, sadly this has been like a genre that has happened for a long time mm. which started with uh, Bam Margera and Don Vito classic right? yeah uh, <laughs> It's all, I it's was going to say it's the Viva La Bamification <laughs> of the entire what world. What do I want to go to Dubai? Oh. <laughs> I was going to say the, the, oh, I like Bulgaria. What the, cra- the fuck? The craziest video in that genre that I've seen is when these parents film their daughter unwrapping a present, yeah. and it turned out to be her first gun. Oh my god! And yes. she was like crying because oh, she, was, she was, so was so happy like, yeah. that she uh, got her first gun, and like all these kind of like NRA people were sharing mm. it, being like, "Look, if you like these liberals who want to ban guns, they just want to make kids unhappy." That's true. Classic. We do um, want to do that, though. It's all to make now conservative oh. white children. Incidentally, sad. The, the the way the way also to get go very viral on Twitter, which kind of quite interests me in, in some of these respects as well, is to say how much you hate American trophy hunters, and you basically just mm. find on Google Images a photo of an American trophy hunter sitting with a dead rhino, yeah, and yeah. you say, "Are you against trophy?" hunting too and suddenly you get like sort of 5,000 shares yeah. and there's this guy called James Melville I don't know if you've ever seen him on Twitter but yeah. he's a sort yeah. of yeah, yeah, yeah. he works in Any PR I've actually Herman. blocked him just because he annoys me so much and I don't <laughs> want to have him somehow sort of stealing my content and turning mm. it into sort of massively sort of lucrative sources yeah. of PR dollars but uh, basically he just every now and then he'll put up a picture of trophy hunters or he'll put up a picture of a traffic jam in LA is another one that you can get massive mm. hits from yeah. or of a monorail in Japan there were certain things I mean, which just you just guaranteed to kind Br- of get, Britain mm. first yeah. like, I'm not talking about my book anymore I? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say Britain first like built their whole like social media infrastructure on animal outrage videos right. like they would find like images of like um, poorly treated dogs in Indonesia yeah. or they would yeah. find like you know, tweet this if you'd poaching. rather they did it to a Muslim right. instead and like there were kind of you know and I was really surprised because like there were teachers that used to teach in my school who were Corbyn supporters who had like liked who had liked the Britain first page and hadn't realized it because they had liked it like years ago because they just saw it, you know, and Mm. they would, they just kind of click share or like they accidentally click the like button and stuff, but they built so much kind of social media capital. that dog was a Nazi. So, 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 sorry, you're back to AC Grayling on his treadmill. I mean, I think that the, the the, 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 the point (laughs) is getting jacked. The, 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 
um, experiencing some sort of impulsive non um uh, non um preplanned uh, sort of physiological response which was precisely to go back to the kind of premise of the book what what sort of someone like descartes back in the 17th century saw as um you know uh, secondary and, and 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 of less significance and and sort of non rational in some way has now become a marker of how much you actually are um committed to something uh, and unless you can somehow sort of photograph it or report it or share it on some way you might just be someone who's just sort of you know moving words around in uh, and and you're not actually someone who is sort of uh, uh, sort of affected by things and I'm, I'm waiting for the youtuber who's like uh hello to all my followers uh, you got to keep quiet we're here in, we're here in waziristan uh, my fiance is about to come out of the house this is her truck now what she doesn't know is that she's been driving around some pretty dodgy areas and she's been flagged as suspicious and uh it's about to get blown up right in front of her face so it's gonna be great just stay yeah, yeah. tuned this is this is this is bam margera um so <laughs> the, uh, Bam Margera for the CIA. No, <laughs> no, he could be a CIA plant. I think everyone is. Mm. Uh, so, but uh, before we sort of get to the fu- sort of talking about future implications, I think there's one more important dichotomy in your book to understand that we haven't explored yet, and that's the one between representation and mobilization. Mm. Yeah, I mean the 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 book is um, about two different sort of ideas of how politics works, or two different let's say different, two different ideas of authority. So one is an idea of authority which says I will act on behalf of the rest of you, and this is kind of what we think parliaments do, what what um, uh, democratically elected leaders do, what uh, what party political parties are set up to do uh, and it's also the one which is in total crisis in the UK right now incidentally as I think we see every day the second is the one which says someone who says um, I might be a complete asshole, but follow me I'm going to get you where you want to get to uh, and that is the type of leadership that someone like Donald Trump offers um, it's the type of leader that, <laughs> <laughs> it's the type of leadership that, that a lot of kind of disruptive entrepreneurs offer um, it's I, I'm not a truth teller I'm not an honest guy I'm not going to somehow sort of I'm not acting in your interests but uh, we're, we're on the move here in some way. Uh, and one of the things that I talk a bit about in the book is that this is a sort of an ideal of of leadership that that originates in warfare of of, of the sort of heroic general who um, mobilizes people, makes them feel confident that they're going to win, makes them feel together, gives them a feeling of identity, gives them a feeling of destination. A little um, two the, minute therapy session before the battle. No, absolutely, exactly. You know, and I, I talk about you know, so someone like sort of you know Farage and these sorts of figures are kind of sort of quasi. I mean, not necessarily very uh, impressive, but um Marc Francois, but effectively their, their ideal of leadership, the reason why they are so der, der, derisory of, of, of parliament and this sort of thing, is that they see politics as a as about movement, about getting to destinations and so on. Um, and I think that that has become, in, particularly in the age of, of, of social media and so on, where you can have kind of startup parties like the Brexit party and so on, is that this is a, has become the kind of dominant format of political authority. And this is partly why political parties, parliaments, institutions, and so on, are so troubled right now is that it's very difficult to know how to accommodate that. Now, Labour has sort of managed it in in, in, a, in a very sort of um, complicated way by sort of, you know, having uh, a, a leader who is much more um, uh, sort of credible in the eyes of a movement than he is in the eyes of the institutions of representation, i.e. the Parliamentary Labour Party and so on. And that has in some ways has kind of fused these two things together in a, in a rather kind of unwieldy, but nevertheless kind of quite sort of at the moment potentially quite effective way. Um, and I, I, sort of, I note that we're sort of, we're getting to time here. So I'm just going to uh, wrap up with actually a... Um, 
a, a quote about sort of moving forward from some of these dichotomies that was offered in a review of your book by Anton Jaeger and Jacobin. And then we'll wrap up. Uh, he says, as the Belgian socialist Jules Destre, Jules Destre put it in 1910, if socialism would be limited to asking for the improvement of material condition of the manual workers, um, it would not rise in the world like a new dawn. That socialism would not be born of the sole distress of hollow stomachs or a matter of appetites, but offers a new idea that arises and asserts itself vis-a-vis the old world. It is essentially freedom through reason, not besides it. So I think this this comes from your point about um, the potential even of like a, like a Corbyn-led socialist government being something where we have to unify the, these ideas of representation and mobilization, where we can mobilize ourselves to represent our own interests, where we can take on expertise and turn it into something popular rather than something elite. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, and I thought the review, which was which was a pretty critical review, but I thought it was a, a very good one. Um, and I, I, I mean, I'm not sure I kind of quite got to some of those sorts of conclusions in the book, but maybe I, I should have kind of pushed myself further in that direction. Yeah, I think well, it what makes were you a lot doing while you're writing this book? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think there's a the, 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 there's quite a lot to be said for that. I mean, I talk a bit about you know citizen science in the in the book. I mean, I think that there's I think one of the big questions of, of something like um, of, of climate is how to bring non-expert knowledge and expert knowledge together in certain respects so that you don't kind of you know run the risk of just patronizing people that that that, 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 that their that their view and their experiences and their their sort of suffering at, um, is irrelevant and I mean since I finished the book I mean I, I saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave a very good speech in the in the Senate about about environmental issues against the charge that they were elitist you know the republicans always accusing greens of being elitist uh, and she said yeah it's not elitist uh, it's not an elitist concern that there are children in the bronx with lung diseases it's not an elitist concern that there are farmers in ohio losing their livelihoods to floods and so on that actually the environment is something that has these kind of very sort of um uh, sort of uh, quite personal quite um uh, uh, quite quite visceral effects on people, uh, and that those experiences are, are sort of just as much part of the story as the kind of highly complex models of uh, of, of of sort of you know global um, climate levels and temperature levels and so on. So what we can say is IPC, um, IPCC and everyone else together. That's dialectics, baby. That's what we always say. <laughs> However, uh, we have gone on for a very long time, so I think it falls to me now only to say, Will, thank you so much for coming it's to pleasure. the studio today. Um, and thank everyone, you. if you haven't read Nervous States, we'll include a link to whatever Will prefers we, that you buy it in the description. You should buy it. It's a really good book. I encourage everyone to read it. And I also encourage you to come see us at the World Transformed if Labor Conference goes ahead, which if we have an election, it won't. <laughs> um, and that's going to be on, I think, the 21st. Uh, Nate will include a link to that in the bio as well. I'm also just going to take a moment to plug my uh, London showing of my Edinburgh show on Thursday, the 26th of September, 7pm to North Down. There'll be some sort of discount code, cool people, that you can use, mm. all caps, cool people. Uh, and just because, so just because the show is quite... Uh, I read I read this book in July and I sort of did a fair amount uh, about 
about this book. It's all, it's all about uh, the link between emotions and rationality. And so it's called Rationale. So Thursday, 26 September, 7 p.m., Alex yeah. Keeley. Yeah. And the following day, you can come and see my Edinburgh show in London on Friday, the 27th of September, which is going to be at the Etc. Theatre in Camden. Uh, my show is not rational anyway. It's uh, entirely about dumb shit that happens in Russia. So if you're interested in that, please do come it's an down. Show. It's, co- it's called Rationale. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, oh god good Amazing. one fucking Damn. good one um all right so on, <laughs> my on friend now it's time to end bye everybody